Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror, fantasy, crime, LGBT, thriller. You have now entered the House of Mystery. With your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. Heard on KCB 106.5 FM Los Angeles. 102.3 FM Riverside. And 1050 AM Palm Springs. Um, so let's welcome uh, Jesse Walker. Thank you for being here. No, thank you for inviting me. Uh, uh, Jesse, I have to start out with that, that title. Uh, I think it's really appropriate. Um, because aren't they really all based on the paranoia? Isn't it all about that? With the states themselves? Uh, yeah. yeah, I will. Well, first of all, thank you. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, American conspiracy theories have actually been around since before there was a United States of America. Um, it, it's, uh, and the book goes back to, you know, the colonists first arriving on these shores and, and immediately starting to suspect that the Indians were conspiring against them, you know, possibly in league with other colonists and possibly in league with the devil. So it, it's it's been all on a, on a on a sort of rapid trajectory since then, and of course, you know, it's not like Americans are especially paranoid. This book look at looks at you know the American conspiracy um, tradition, but I'm sure someone could write a great book about the conspiracy theories of Brazil or Finland or or anything else. Uh, but yeah, we've got a good uh, solid uh, several centuries of conspiracy theories to work with. So a lot of people think that now is the time of conspiracy theory, and I can understand why they say that. I mean, with with, with a lot of the rhetoric coming from the Trump administration and, you know, obviously rhetoric from the other side that accuses him of all sorts of stuff. Um, do you think there are other times that would stick out more than what we're living through now? Yeah, I, I think it's... Um I, I, there's no time that doesn't have a whole bunch of conspiracy theories. I mean, I mean, it, it's almost to me, it's like the question about a historical period is not, um, are there a lot of conspiracy theories? It's, you know, what kind of conspiracy theories 
were popular at this time and with who, because you know you're going to find a lot of things. Um, there, there's no couple of years, you know, in the middle of the 1870s or something where Americans just sort of chilled out and relaxed about everything for, for a bit. So, um, yeah, there's certainly other times um, that are uh, comparable in intensity, if not always in the you know, the details to the conspiracy theories you're hearing about now. Um, uh, wartime is always um, a, a, a big time for conspiracy fears. And, of course, we're going through several wars right now, um, so people don't need to be reminded of that. But if you look back at any time from the American Revolution to the Civil War, um, early Cold War, and so on, uh, you know, there's, I mean, World War One, World War Two. there's always these spikes. You know, In World War One, there were all these fears, for example, of... Uh, German conspiracies, and there's some rational basis for that. You know, you were at war, there were spies and saboteurs, but, you know, things tended to get, get over the top at times um, when pretty much anybody, I mean, there was this fear um, in some locations that, you know, the German language itself could be concealing um, who knows what was being discussed. You know, it was almost like people are speaking in code, so there was moves to shut down, uh, prevent people from, um, uh, you know, even being able to take classes in it in school. Um, and other kinds of uh, shut, uh, you know, attempts to even go after uh, some of the um, <laughs> some parts of German culture uh, that you wouldn't think uh, what the uh, how it would be uh, in a threat. But um, I'm trying to remember which um, which city it was that banned Beethoven. I think it was Pittsburgh <laughs> for the duration of the war. So this is uh, it, it, this is certainly not the only time that we've been through something like this. So do you think it's, you know, given that, is it sort of a, a utopian pipe dream to think that somehow if we clean up social media or if we, you know, have better reporting or more fact-checking that somehow we'll have this world where there's no conspiracy theories? Yeah, I mean, that obviously is a utopian pipe dream. I mean, there, there's never going to be a time when you can have no conspiracy theories. Um, now, someone might say, are you going to significantly lessen them um, with you know social media controls and, and so on, and I don't think that's true either. <laughs> um, I mean, number one, um, three things you got to keep in mind about you know human beings, not just Americans, in conspiracy theories. You know, number one is that we are a pattern-seeking creature, a, a narrative-writing creature. We 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 try to make sense of the world around us, and if there's a gap in the signals, we're going to look for some way to connect those dots. That's just the way we think. Um, and, and for good reasons, too. You can't just wander through life thinking everything is disconnected. Um, number two is, you know, we are fearful creatures. Sometimes we're legitimately afraid of things. Sometimes we're just jumping at shadows. But that means that when we're connecting those dots, um, you're going to sometimes see, uh, be imagining a, a conspiracy there. And then number three thing is, you know, sometimes people conspire. It's not like the word is, uh, it, it's not like you keep waiting, you know, for uh, being afraid of werewolves and eventually, you know, no werewolf shows up. You know, it's a, you do periodically see actual conspiracies of human beings. Um, and so when you're going to have people who are um, looking for patterns, um, who are uh, sometimes feeling fearful, and who are aware that a conspiracy is something that might um, materialize in the real world, they're going to imagine conspiracies, um, whether or not the conspiracies are there. And that's going to go on, you know, no matter what Facebook says about it. And, and really, I mean, the sort of tendency to blame these, uh, you know, conspiracy theories on, on Facebook, Facebook is the medium now, or one of the media right now, 
But you know, I mean, it, in the past, it was, it might have been passed through orally, it might have gone through um, print media or or through talk radio. But it, it's not like it, it's never been possible to clamp down um, entirely. And in fact, when you tend to clamp down on um, the more immediately visible sources, the rumors that circulate, you know, you know, orally and through other means, sometimes get wilder because people are having a harder time <laughs> getting uh, legitimate information as well. Um, and so I, I, I think that if, if one actual effect of fa- Facebook is to make these things more transparent, make it more apparent when these things happen, when a conspiracy rumor takes off, um, people hear about it faster, even if they're not part of the subculture where it's going on. Um, and, you know, it gets uh, debunked faster as well. And you now the debunking might not spread as fast as the original rumor. That's always been a, you know, a pitfall that debunkings run into. But it's... Uh, it, 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 it's really just it's the new technological landscape for a very old um, you know social pattern. I think the internet and some other people have made this argument too is that it's a place where conspiracy theories really go to die now because we're so concerned about it that when something pops up, you know, it, it seems like it's bigger than it is, but everyone's really most of the most of the coverage of it is people attacking it. Like I heard from somebody in Facebook that the Pelosi, you know, deep fake video that made her look drunk was only shared a few hundred times before um, the, the journalists got in and started covering it on all the um, major outlets. And it probably spread more because of places like CNN covering it than it did because of Facebook at all. And it was more outrage shares rather than um, yeah, so people I, really I believing saw that. It. I, I saw that as well, and it wasn't clear to me if he was just talking about how many shares on Twitter or how many shares total. But mm-hmm. it's certainly the case with the um, Pelosi video. Well, a couple things. Number one, you, you said deep fake. It wasn't even a deep fake. You know, people are all worried about. You know, these uh, we're uh, we're always supposedly on the verge of being able to use technological means to create some sort of perfect, undetectable fake. And yet, you know, at the same time that technology evolves. You know, people get wise to these new technologies. People learn how to spot photoshops and so on. Um, so in, in this case, um, people are all worried about deep fakes, but this was not a sophisticated deep fake video. He just slowed it down a little and, and made a few tweaks like that. Um, it, and it, it's, uh, so this was, you know, not some sort of really new thing. This is the kind of stuff that's been around, um, literally for decades. I mean, when it, I mean, before it was on social media, you could see, um, um, you know, uh, uh, videos like this, you know, through other means and, and, and audio things, you know, that were done similarly, often just times as um, satires. Um, and then the other thing, though, is that I would see people talk. There was this piece, I think it was in the New York Times, uh, where he kept talking about how many views it had had. And, you know, I, and, says, and now it's gone on and now it's at four million views, whatever it was, <laughs> you know. Uh, and it, it was... Uh, and number one, of course, the number of views is going to keep going up. There's no way for people to unview things, so yeah. it wasn't. But beyond that, I mean, I thought of what you were thinking. was At this point, to the extent that this is spreading with a political message, there must be many more people who are seeing this and thinking, oh, my goodness, those Republicans have created this awful video. Then people are seeing this and saying, oh, my goodness, Nancy Pelosi is a lush. I mean, it, it, it's... I know there are people who have watched this and have taken it at face value under its original, um, you know, intentions, assuming it wasn't originally created as a joke, but whether it was initially, you know, spread uh, among pro-Trump people. And I don't have any kind of 
uh, poll breakdown of how many people saw it under those circumstances versus how many people saw it because, you know, the New York Times and other places were complaining about it. Um, so this is just like based on my, you know, you know, necessarily biased by who I follow on my Twitter feed and that sort of thing. But it sure looks to me like many more people um, were spreading this um, to complain about what was being done about to Pelosi than to complain about Nancy Pelosi. Pelosi. And some of the people who initially shared it uh, to complain about, oh, Pelosi is terrible, then took it down when they found, I mean, you know, Rudy Giuliani deleted his tweet. Um, and Rudy Giuliani looked like a jackass for having, you know, forwarded this thing without checking into whether it was, um, uh, you know, uh, true or not. So, um, yeah, I, 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 so I basically agree with you. And I, if anything, I would take it a little bit further than you did. You, uh, one thing I was thinking about as, when I saw the video was that, um, you know, obviously it's longer and it's video. But it reminded me a lot of the congressional campaign commercials that, that you see every every two years on TV where they'll show, you know, sitting congressman, whoever, and then the, the screen goes, you know, um, instead of color, it becomes, you know, black and white, and they gray right. the person's face out and slow it down, and they're like, they support communism, dong, <laughs> or something like that. And obviously, <laughs> no, I, I remembered... The um, I was living in North Carolina as a as a kid during the infamous Jesse Helms Jim Hunt uh, Senate race of 1984, and so I remember things like the uh, the ad that was this is actual footage of Jim Hunt voting to raise your taxes, and they have him raising his taxes, I'm sorry, raising his hand in slow motion, you know, to make it, and it was, and he was a governor, you know, he couldn't even vote. It was like some sort of like a meeting of governors where they're getting like a show of hands for something, you know. So it was, you know, it was slowed down. It was dishonest. And of course, everybody then made, was making fun of it, you know, in response. So it went, you know, back and forth. Uh, I mean, people were giving as good as they, as they got in that race. Uh, but it reminded me not just of that sort of thing, but of, um, I don't know if you ever heard, this is another thing from the 80s. There was, um, uh, a record where somebody uh, just sort of spliced up, bit, sliced up bits of Ronald Reagan's speeches um, together so that he was saying nonsense. And so he was, uh, like, talking about, uh, he was, like, they combined him talking about some entrepreneur with what kind of regulations should deal with poison meat. And so he's saying that somebody is great. He's created some poison meat, you know. And, you know it, and I can remember hearing this on the, uh, on the radio, like the college radio station playing. And it was really funny stuff. I could imagine maybe somebody tuned by and think this is an actual speech of Ronald Reagan going crazy or something. Um, but, I mean, there certainly are plenty of cases of, um, you know, satire being mistaken for truth. Um, I mean, a lot of, like, what gets called, you know, fake news is, actually comes from, you know, sort of onion knockoff sites, you know. But it's uh, that's something that, you know, again, is, is not new to the Facebook age. We're just seeing the Facebook version of it. I, 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 well, I do, I do want to... I do want to slightly disagree with something you said, though, about the Internet being where um, uh, conspiracy theories go to die. Because, I mean, they do proliferate on the Internet, too, there are, and there are lots of subcultures devoted to them and all that. It's just that – but I think you're right that that's one of the things that happens to them. And I, and I can think back it, – it's so different from, you know, in the early 90s um, when I was, you know, a young adult and, you know, I mean, like for the first time really sort of as a post-college adult paying attention to uh, – politics in that kind of context um you know i would you know see or hear some sort of rumor um because i was reading both the left-wing press and the right-wing press you know and, and i would see um 
some sort of rumor about Al Gore or Ross Perot or something. And it would be months before I even see it mentioned, if it's mentioned at all, on the other, in the other side's press or in the mainstream media. And then it would be maybe years before I hear, you know, oh, well, actually this got debunked, you know, and, and this wasn't true. I mean, it's just this very slow motion process, and it was easy to miss, um, much easier to miss some sort of step along the way. You couldn't just go to Snopes or, um, oh, what's the name of that site that the former Snopes people started? <laughs> it's another sort of competition in the Snopes. Uh, space, you know, and sort of like look up. Well, what are the professional debunkers doing the moment you hear a, a new rumor? I mean, that is um, that is new. Um, that is something that is different from the past, and it's not something that really gets drawn into these um, conversations about the internet and conspiracy theories as much as it should. I I think it brings up this issue that it's much harder than people think you know, at first glance to say, well, we're just going to get rid of the fake stuff or we're going to get rid of the false stuff. Because I, I think in some ways there's a lot of conspiracy theories that people would say, okay, well, that one should be taken down and that's clearly false and stupid and that should be taken down. But then you have all, all this other stuff that people say, well, I don't think that should be taken down. Yeah, and, and you're asking, um, and, and people who, I mean, there's this whole... Um, there's this whole kind of genre of criticism of, you know, the big tech platforms, you know, social media plus Google, um, and to some extent even Amazon. I, I, fortunately, there hasn't been as much of it, but sometimes people complain about what's being sold on Amazon, where people assume that they make distinctions between what's legitimate and what's not um, without regard for the fact that it might shake out differently in a pluralistic country as to you know what the social media company um, is going to decide is legitimate or not, um, and and so you have, um, I mean we're moving away a bit from uh, you know the con the conspiracy thing, but I I was reading something I think in Huffington Post that was. Uh, talking about, you know, why can't they just uh, use the algorithms or something, you know, to shut down white nationalist content online. And, and the person's thesis was, well, if they went for certain linguistic, you know, um, patterns or, you know, words used, you know, they might, you know, take down a bunch of Republicans, too, and, you know, aggravate, uh, you know, the uh, and aggravate people they don't want to aggravate. But this person was, was then saying, well, but you could still do it because look what they did you know, they could manage to do it with ISIS uh, content, right? Why couldn't you do it with this? And I'm thinking, who knows how many things have been illegitimately, have been improperly taken down because they were using algorithms to search for ISIS content. And we don't hear about it because the people who get swept in who shouldn't be are not Republican politicians who are, you know, a bit right-wing but not uh, white nationalists. It's people who uh, do not have representation in Washington and are speaking another language quite possibly and are just getting some kind of... Um, Put under under the rug, you know, with genuine terrorist content. Yeah, the stuff that you would, and if that has, you know, is is roping in stuff that shouldn't be roped in uh, in an ideal world, then you know that the places where people actually do have um, representation, um, not just in the government, but you know, in, in in the media and the cultural sphere, and and can step forward and. Um, speak up for their views of what should count as illegitimate content or not. In that case, you're really going to get into a mess. You're probably going to wind up creating uh, uh, rules that rope in people. You're going to either keep leaving in, uh, let, letting stuff go up that 
you there writing at Huffington Post or whatever do not want to see online, or you're going to have rules written so broadly that it's going to include a bunch of stuff that you there writing at Huffington Post do like and are upset gets drawn in. Yeah, or you're, most likely you're going to get both because these are clumsy algorithms that are really bad at this. Um, and uh, there's, uh, you know, this is stuff that you know human curation has a hard time doing, let alone stuff that's supposed to, you know, filter um, material before it goes up. So yeah, people are asking for um, people. People are asking social media companies to make um, distinctions that they're not really equipped to make. They're not really going to want to make. Um, and when they, if they do make them, it's probably going to uh, uh, aggravate greatly a number of the people who've been asking them to make it. In fact, it's already happening. You know, I mean, we've already seen um, so many cases where you know rules that were created in order to make it easier to report. Um, you know, right-wing extremists um, and, and their activity online was instantly captured um, by the very right-wing extremists it was aimed at, who used it to report a bunch of their critics. Um, and people find themselves getting taken down because you know they use some of the some improper words while quoting somebody or something obvious like that. And then people start saying, Ah, this just shows Twitter is in bed. Uh, with the far right. Says, no, what it shows is that you are asking him to do something that is instantly going to be captured by the very people you hate. Maybe you should rethink your strategy. Yeah. I mean, I, I have noticed this too recently where there are um, some very good videos that people have made out there debunking, um, you know, Holocaust denial conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. But you have the word Holocaust and conspiracy theory and YouTube's going to bump it off. You know, and say, oh, this violates our rules because, you know, and, and, and they'll even say things like this is illegal in seven, several of the countries that we're in. But the video is there to do good, not do harm, but they can't differentiate because you don't have humans making these decisions. It's just, um, you know, lang- you know, computerized language processing doing it. So there's a, there's a serious cost to it. Um, yeah. Another thing I would say, too, is that, you know, you bring up this interesting point about how um, extremist groups, they use language that is kind of disguised, so it sounds more mainstream than it is. So it's always going to be difficult. You know, it doesn't shock me that white nationalists talk like other conservatives. I mean, because they're going to try to disguise their message and make it look more palatable to more people. Um you know, communists on the other side are going to do the same thing, too. I mean, very few people are going to be successful. They come out and say, I'm a communist. But if they speak more like a Democrat, they'll they'll be able to reach more people. Um, so I think that causes a bigger, you know, a bigger issue here. It makes it far more difficult to track this language because everyone's incentivized to sort of dog whistle and hide what they're saying, at least to a point. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I... Uh... Although I think um, dog whistling gets in, uh, gets uh, exaggerated too, because now people, um, you know, I remember when, um, you know, when people, when the phrase dog whistling entered the um, sort of mainstream political um, uh, lexicon, you know, was when uh, George W. Bush was president, and he would give speeches that, and where you know, some of the phrases, I, I mean, it was, it was. 
it wasn't like he was concealing what he was saying. He would have phrases that, say, a pro-life audience would hear it and say, aha, you're talking about, you know, this court case that we're very upset about. But, you know, there's a, he doesn't explicitly invoke it. And so someone else might just hear it and say, all right, that's, a, um, a, a, you know, a more general sentiment. Well, you know, now the phrase dog whistling is used just to sort of read secret messages into all manner of, of things. I mean, it's, it's become this, uh, I mean, I've seen people accused of, on Twitter of dog whistling for their followers to kill people because someone managed to come up with some way to construe um, some innocuous uh, uh, comment as uh, uh, in that in that manner. So it's like, yeah, so people kind of... So I, 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 it's made me kind of allergic to that word dog whistling. But I see what you're saying. Like people do tend to like sort of find a nice sort of uh, sunshine apple pie America way to express whatever they're saying. You know, I, you know, there's a, you could have like some group, you know, in the 1950s or 60s where it will have in its name, you know, like you know, civil liberties. And you look uh, closer, and you know, just about everyone there. Strangely, they're only concerned about the civil liberties of people in the Communist Party. <laughs> Um, and, 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 and there might be well, may well be just, you know, actually intervening on the civil liberties side of those issues. And, you know, your solid, real ACLU types would be happy to have their help. But you look at, you know, who's involved and on, you can say, all right, there's a bit of, um, you know, just sort of uh, downplaying uh, the, the more radical part of the message here. Um, but that's, uh, yeah, it's so, I, getting, getting back to, I mean, what you were saying, I, I, I think that, um, People are not just asking. Hang, I, I need a, a sip of this. People are not just asking um, these companies to, uh, you know, make these distinctions that they're not equipped to make. But they're putting these companies in a position where they have an additional incentive to ask the government to make those decisions for them because they don't want to be blamed. They don't want the liability. Mm-hmm. They find they kind of they're in this position where if they're you know, if they're being asked to do the policing, they want clear rules, and um, I and, and as a result, you wind up uh, having some people who might, in the past, have been you know a bulwark against um, any move towards government censorship, um, actually calling for a form of it um, because it's so much easier just to have the guidelines and to put it off on the people who create those guidelines. So that's, you know, that's the deeper um, danger here, because then you could have a position where laws are passed, you know, with, you know, the backing of, you know, Facebook and Twitter and so on, like trying to look responsible. Um, But it's not just Facebook and Twitter and so on who have to follow it, because it's the law of the land now. Um, And, uh, you know, smaller operations uh, find themselves needing to follow these rules, and you close off um, you know, what were sort of smaller and freer spaces for discussion. Um, and also, you know, maybe create mandates that smaller places have a hard time uh, keeping up with. So you wind up, you know, your revolt against big tech actually winds up sort of solidifying the big tech company's market share rather than reducing it. Uh, and then that's another danger that I think we have to keep in mind. Now, does this, you know, I completely agree with that, and I'm always concerned that that's what I believe, because that sort of gets into conspiracy territory, and it's sort of like a conspiracy that's taking place right in front of us. Like when they hauled uh, Facebook in front of Congress, and Lindsey Graham said to them, oh, will you help us write these rules? And the answer was emphatic yes. 
you know, because they're, you know, as much as they might kick and scream in public about having these rules, they're, you know, there's an underlying incentive there, and that is that it's going to solidify their market position and keep out competition, as you say. And 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 I just, it it sort of bothers me when you get the richest tech people in the world and the you know the most powerful you know deliberative body in the world to get together to make rules for everyone else, and of course it's going to come out in their favor and not in the favor of anyone else. So I just wonder if if I'm imputing a motive there that might not be there, but I'm I'm pretty sure it's there. I mean, I I think they want to solidify their market position. I do think they they want that. I, I think that if you were to go into those companies, you would find a mix of people who are eager to do that sort of thing and people who um, want to avoid that, and people who ideally they'd avoid that. But if there's going to be rules, they'd rather be the ones writing it, you know. So I'm sure you have a mix of motives, and you don't have to have just one small cabal pushing everything. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux. XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. ...thing in the same direction, but I mean, they know what their incentives are. And even if they don't, if they are thinking that way, I mean, just the very fact that they'd rather not be the ones responsible can create that situation, you know? 
um, even if they didn't, um, even if that wasn't the original impetus behind it. But you know, we've seen this with other kind of uh, media in the past. I mean, it's uh, you know, with um, I mean, I, my first book is about the history of radio regulation, or well, it's actually about it larger than thing is the history of radio, but a big part of it is radio regulation. And a lot of what's going on is, on the one hand, um, you have these uh, um, these entry barriers being created by uh, uh, the Federal Radio Commission and then the Federal Communications Commission at a time when there's a revolving door between the commission and the industry being regulated. And, you know, it, you know an amazing coincidence. Uh, you know, there's uh, things wind up being uh, sort of uh, created to the benefit more of the uh, entrenched um, companies that these people came from than from the, uh, you know, smaller upstarts or potential upstarts. Um, and and I think you can there. You don't need to have again a big conspiracy to uh, to explain that. You just have to have some people who you know know what incentives they have, and then they've got a new job, and they're gonna know where they came from, and they have the perspective of someone who's been in the industry. And um, and what do you know? That's the, they can wind up coming up with uh, rules that work to the benefits of the large networks um, rather than the upstart. But then the flip side is, is once you've got um, the um, you know rules in place, you you've got this kind of situation where you can have what I don't remember who first used this phrase, but regulation by raised eyebrow. Um, there there's this kind of uh, like in um, in television, um, you know there were there were these there were things that the FCC banned, and then there were these kind of gray areas where you weren't quite sure how they would react, and so you had these. Um, these, you know, standards and practices uh, departments, you know, in the networks that sort of come up with what can we do. Um, and they're not just worried about the FCC. They're also worried about, you know, boycotts or just people changing the channel. Um, but the fact that when the FCC started loosening some of those rules, a lot of the standard practices rules, you know, loosened or, or went away kind of uh, demonstrates that they really had their eyes on Washington. But they would go much further than just what the FCC said. It's in the 1950s, um, so early on, you know, network censors were even saying you couldn't say the WC, you know, as a euphemism for a toilet. You know, they just didn't want because <laughs> we don't know if we could even talk about toilets on the air or uh, words like bloody or bollocks, you know, were, were kind of uh, ruled out. Again, those weren't FCC rules, but if it weren't for the FCC, they wouldn't be coming up with these rules. So even if you get um, kind of, you know, we the Facebook and Twitter and so on managed to get. Um, a situation where the government is coming up uh, with the basic guidelines and they want to be able to point to the government, they're still going to have to make a bunch of judgment calls. And we might find ourselves in a situation where, um, you know, the, uh, these, on the one hand, these rules have created um, a more oligopolistic uh, situation where, you know, their market share is entrenched and you don't have um, as many smaller competitors. But then on, on the flip side, they're still worried about what they can get away with, and they reach for it. They do the um, 21st century equivalent of saying maybe we can't have somebody talking about the WC. Uh, I mean, or, or I guess like the modern equivalent would be like things where um, you know Facebook has taken down um, you know pictures of uh, primitive statuettes where they have you know bare breasts in something that no one would ever you know think of in a sexual way, but because it, you know I well geez we've got a, or taking down breastfeeding groups photos and things like that. Um, because again, they aren't very good at making those distinctions. So what would happen? And I guess this is my um, 
this is the example I trot out when anyone says I think there should be regulation on this. How would the government or a tech company be able to handle the sort of conspiracy theories that are flying around Trump Russia right now? Because on the one hand, we have, you know, the whole point of free expression is to be able to question the, you know, the government. And so you have all these, and I call them conspiracy theories about Trump's involvement with Russia. But then you also have conspiracy theories about, you know, how did this investigation get started in the first place? So which ones do we ban? Do we not ban any of them? Um, in, and and, and there's, it's not like there's a, a, a real obvious divining point between someone doing legitimate journalism looking into, um, you know, either one of those. I mean, like Trump's yeah. possible conflict of interest in Russia or, you know, uh, people within the FBI not liking Trump. Going out, I mean, we can point to that and say this person here is a serious investigative journalist. You there at the New York Times, and we can point over here and say you, Louise Mensch, you are saying in crazy <laughs> things about the marshal of the Supreme Court is going to arrest whoever it was, Steve Bannon, or, or you know. I, but it's not like those are the only two options. There's this whole kind of spectrum, and you've had legitimate journalists screw up because yeah. they followed something, they put something. I would not want. I mean, on the one hand. That's a pretty good example of how conspiracy thinking can infect the mainstream. But on the other hand, I serve, I do not want um, Facebook, you know, saying, "Well, all right, this made it past, you know, the Washington Post's, uh, 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 you know, uh, editorial filters." But if, darn it, it's not going to make it past Facebook's editorial filters. Huh. I mean, that's that's really not what you want to have have happen. Um, and it, it's a, um, especially, I mean, when I think about like sort of the conspiracy theory angle on it. A lot of this more has to do with how it's used, how it's used to, you know, to delegitimize people and things like that. I mean, again, with the Russia example, um, whatever you think is the case, as, you know, as far as how influential um, Russian disinformation was in the election and so on, I, I don't think I don't think it did anything close to swinging the election myself. Um, but the fact that those um, uh, that there clearly were um, some disinformation efforts, and that these allegations exist, you know, that would stretch it further in different ways. Um, that has been used as, as to just sort of um, as a bludgeon, so that um, you know people point to um, Bernie Sanders and 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 say, you know, you're just. Uh, I mean, you've, I'm sure we've all seen sort of the people, who st- the old Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders people who still hate each other. Uh, three years later, and and then, and you say, you know, he was basically doing Russia's bidding, you know, when he was, you know, making, you know, getting in Hillary Clinton's way so that she couldn't be uh, revving up and moving towards the center and getting ready to be, defeat Trump. Or you have, uh, and even going beyond that, this, this idea, since it's understood that Russia probably had the aim of trying to widen um, existing divisions in American society. Um, I'm not really sure that it did that in any meaningful way. I think it's more like it, it was sort of the equivalent of running to the front of the parade and saying, hi, I'm the leader. You know, it's like you yeah. add a few more ads, you know, like, like we're doing our cheap knockoffs of Black Lives Matter and anti-Black Lives Matter ad, but, you know, everybody was already yelling at each other. But yeah. now it's like anytime there's like any kind of division along, you know, whether it's, you know, race, gun control, economic stuff, um, you have people saying, you know, this is just what Russia wants. You know, you might as well be, uh, you know, a Russian agent. <laughs> you know, and, and so, uh, and even when they don't do it in the direct conspiracy way, when you're saying you might as well be, it's like, no, Russia, America has always been like this. We've always had divisions, and you know what? 
while there are really unhealthy ways to express those divisions, it's not bad that people are arguing about it. Um, that's, not, that's otherwise there's going to be no way we work these things out to any degree, right? Yeah. So yeah, and, I, I mean, there's been a few articles this week saying, "Oh, Russia has been pushing anti-vax conspiracy theories," and and this has really you know caused the problem. And it's like, no, this has been going on for. Hundreds of years, but I mean, in, in a current incarnation, about 20 years, but there's always been an anti-vax movement, and it was going on before the Internet and before Russia was was doing anything with it. Yeah, and, and, and I don't see signs that anything Russia has done has made it stronger. I mean, and I haven't looked specifically at, like, the allegations about anti-vax, but I remember I did something look at um, – the because uh, I remember there when there was the whole oh a year or two ago there was a wave of stories about how Russians were trying to organize demonstrations like actual physical demonstrations where people you know would gather and and, and meet and this was sort of presented in a kind of scare story way of like look now people Russia is even getting people to go out on the streets you know directing us where they're useful idiots. Um, and in fact, I mean, like with one exception, these were all things like, you know, like a, a dozen people tops. There, and the the only exception where they had a lot was in New York right after the um, the inauguration of Donald Trump, or maybe it was right after the election, where there were tons of mar- big marches anyway. So what yeah. do you know? They managed to have another. But at any rate, where I was getting at was um, I saw this um, piece that was um, making a big deal out of how many people they managed to get to a Texas secessionist demonstration. I don't remember the number, but let's say a couple dozen. And I just went back because I remembered um, paying some attention to the Texas secessionists back in the 90s when I was writing about the original militia movement, you know. Um, And I found this report of things where they got a couple hundred people, (laughs) you know, much larger number at at this, uh, at an event. Um, you know, and at, at a time when um, Russia was being run by Boris Yeltsin and wasn't uh, wasn't doing any operations against the United States at all that anyone knows about, uh, it's uh, so. I mean, again, it, it winds up being a scapegoat, and you know, conspiracy theories they they can. I try not to paint with a big brush because you know some of them are can be really harmful, some of them are harmless, and so on. But the ones that are that are harmful tend to be the ones that scapegoat people, and so I really get nervous about anything that it's, yeah, you know you, whether you're scapegoating Russia, especially when it's a foreign power. That's when things get dicey. Because and and you know the really dangerous scapegoat um, theories right now are the ones you know about Latin Americans you know but I, I really don't like seeing people who are nominally opposed to that when people like Trump are doing it um, when Mexicans and Central Americans yeah. um, turning around and using the same kind of um, kind of paranoid nationalist rhetoric um, about a different country I, I, I think you're exactly right I guess you know looking back after Clinton's loss there was this moved by a lot of people who just couldn't understand why she didn't win and and every adversary then became a russian agent it was trump was a russian agent uh sanders was a russian agent jill stein had been a russian agent and anyone who had ever been to russia anyone who had any dealings with russia um even if they even if some of these you know links were you know phantom um Everyone's a Russian agent. Even uh, like uh, Tulsi Gabbard right now, Russian agent. Yeah. Um, so it seems like um, that's the scapegoat. And I guess what bothers me there, if you take it a step further, I mean, there are a lot of people saying, well, 
if Trump doesn't go to war with Russia, it just proves how much of a KGB agent he is. You know, so you almost have people, you know, beating the drum for war because they're afraid of this this Russian boogeyman and think that, you know, we our president needs to prove that he's not one of them. War is the well, only this, answer. I mean, there are definitely people who, um, you know, they're part of sort of the standard foreign policy thinking, and, and they... Uh, they hear um, people outside of that who are, you know, say, skeptical about NATO or U.S. participation in NATO for reasons that don't have anything to do uh, with sympathy for Russia. Mm-hmm. They have to do with things like, you know, it's been almost 30 years since the Cold War ended, <laughs> um, you know, and, you know, may- maybe uh, maybe things have evolved in a direction they should not have evolved in, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and they, it's, they're just kind of incomprehending because they haven't heard those ideas before, although they're completely legitimate, you know, you know, academic and diplomatic people who believe them. It's not just like some fringe thing. Yeah. And so, and then, and then when they're being expressed, not by those people, but kind of in this kind of half-assed way by Donald Trump, you know, who's, you know, not the most intellectually sharp person. And so, you know, like he had that, um, he had that meeting, um, with, uh, Vladimir Putin on that public meeting where, um, people were saying, I cannot explain his behavior here through anything other than him being a Russian agent. And I say, uh, first of all, if he were a Russian agent, he would have found some way to be smoother in yeah. this meeting. Um, you know, but, <laughs> but, but number two, it's like everything that happened in that meeting can be explained by just a mixture of A, having different ideas, and B, you know, being this kind of not so bright guy who did not come up through uh, standard politics and completely understand how you behave, and and has this notion about you know who his friends are and who his friends aren't, you know, sort of affecting that as well. Um, and the way people not just leapt to the conspiratorial explanation, but acted as though that was the only possible, especially when these are people who are not generally given to thinking of Donald Trump as a diabolical genius. <laughs> you should not happen to be happen to be explaining to them it's possible, you know, that he he's just not thinking some of these things through <laughs> as, as thoroughly as you or I are. Um I don't know. It it's uh I I I think that it has somewhat subsided um because of the Mueller report, obviously not completely subsided um but I, I mean now a lot of the uh impeachment talk is more around just sort of the abuse of power when you know when the Mueller investigation was underway and you know that's a much more legitimate conversation uh, no matter which way you end up coming down on the issue um but that's still lurking and i i will not be um surprised to see it flaring up more and more again as the um as the uh, election goes on, and also I, th- I think you know the, the Trump people have um, learned from it, and they're 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 going to learn to they're starting to treat China the same way. Um, Justin Amash, uh, congressman from Michigan, who's been um, uh, you know open to impeaching Trump and, and a long history of um, uh, criticizing Trump for uh, other reasons, you know beyond the Mueller stuff. Um, you know, there, there's this sort of nonsense conspiracy theory about him in China that's being circulated. I've seen other things sort of brought up in terms of, uh, you know, whether people are linked to China. Um, and, and I would not be surprised if um, just as, you know, the Russian, I mean, I was talking about the Russian the sort of inadvertently sounding like kind of like the, the uh, Trumpians fear of, from, of Latin America. I think there might be some more deliberate copying going on as um, as you know the sinophobia kicks in or or gets pumped up and the trade war continues 
And um, you know, by by, the, by this time next year, we may well have some nonsense theory where Joe Biden is a conscious <laughs> agent of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, well, what's interesting to me is that you know, yes, the Mueller report tamped down a lot of the rhetoric for most people, but not for everyone. I mean, there were people like Jonathan Chait who had been saying, you know. Uh, Trump has been a uh, Russian agent for 40 years, and then after the Mueller report comes out and says, no, he's not a Russian agent, he didn't conspire with Russia, Chait doubles down and says, well, it only proves how right I am. And yeah, so I, mean, I, 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 I think there's a lot of people on the left who sort of have you know, the conspiracy thinking, they just don't know where to put it yet, and we've seen for the last few weeks put it at, at, at the Attorney General bar, put it at someone else, put it to some other plot. Um, but they don't know where to aim it right now because that that Russian thing has just sort of disappeared a little bit. Yeah. So I mean, a couple of things. I mean, one is I mean, I um, Jonathan Chait's piece. If you if you look at his original piece, um, the one where he sort of dredged up those kind of the uh, was Russia an agent was Trump a Russian agent going back to 1987, which by the way is a, an allegation which the earliest iteration of it I've seen was in the Lyndon LaRouche network, so that made its way. Uh, <laughs> that tells you something. But it, yeah, I mean, like, cause, I mean, I know John, and and I challenged him on on that, and he was saying, look, if, if you if you read the piece, you know, I I just sort of raised that as a possibility, and then move on to this other stuff that's more solid, and I say. You've been a professional journalist for a long time. You should know that what you lead with is what people take away. Even if you don't make like the firm statement he was definitely an agent, even if you say you know this is a less likely possibility, but it comes chronologically first. You know that's. I mean, I think it's was nonsense to bring it in in the first place, and it just discredits what other points you want to make. Um, and he said he thought it was like a twenty percent chance, and like no, I mean it's less than one percent chance. Um, <laughs> You know, because it doesn't make sense in the context of the uh, like if he'd been a Russian agent since 1987, why would the campaign be sort of, you know, ha haphazardly trying to re deal with the Russians, you know, during, uh, you know, in 2016? It doesn't make sense. They would already have the back channels and so on. Um, but it's, um, but I mean, it's it's that's the sort of example of someone who's, yeah, I mean, John is a smart person. He knows you can't just go there and say this is what's going, this is definitely what's going on, but because he distrusts Trump, he can't dismiss it, and he allows that to be in there in that kind of just asking questions manner, which people think of as just a fringe thing, but obviously it's not just a fringe thing. Um, if, you know, a mainstream journalist, you know, who's you know, met the previous president, wrote a, wrote a book praising him and so on, is, is willing to do that um, in an article for a mainstream magazine like New York. Um, and I forget the other thing I was going to say about what, what you just said, but I'm, I'm sure it was a much better point, and I should have said it first. <laughs> well, you bring up one thing, and I, and I guess we'll end on this. Is, is it's, there is a lot of bad reporting in the mainstream media, and some of it does go into conspiracy territory. Um, one thing that immediately comes to mind that's a little bit off topic, but say, a lot of articles lately about how there's all sorts of UFOs flying in the sky. Now, clearly, you know, when Washington Post says, you know, pilots seeing UFOs, I mean, they're trying to draw in clicks with people who think they mean aliens. And there's no evidence that it's aliens flying through the sky that, that the military is concealing. But that's what they're trying to, to imply strongly. And it's going on in a lot of mainstream 
outlets. Um, but we saw the same thing with Russia. You know, Russia's going to turn off your electricity this winter. And, uh, you know, day 422 of the ongoing Russia operation in the White House on yeah. MSNBC, all, all sorts of this stuff. And, and, you know, I think a lot of the criticism of social media, you know, tries to isolate it and say, well, they're the ones where you get the, the conspiracy stuff. And, and they're sort of not, looking at all of the conspiracy and fake news and nonsense that gets through the traditional gatekeeper sometimes. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, I when Pizzagate kind of broke, and, and people for, and those for you who are not um, listening, let's just say for, we'll bracket the explanation, Pizzagate was a really nutty conspiracy theory that was popular <laughs> a couple of years ago, okay? Um, but there was this whole, like, and it involved, like, um, sex slaves in the basement of a pizza restaurant. So there was this whole um, thing like how our look, this conspiracy theory is invading mainstream politics, invading the mainstream. And you know what? Actually, the mainstream had been um, hosting a whole lot of human trafficking conspiracy theories for a long time that did not have a sort of political valence. And it would, you would have like these sort of nonsense stories that have been debunked time and again about how the, there's like this big spike in human trafficking at the Super Bowl every year and, you know, and things like that. Um, and you also had um, stuff that uh, – you know, uh, There'd be some Facebook post um, so, or someone, you know, who's like walking through um, Walmart and sees somebody eyeing her child and is convinced that that must be a a uh, a, uh, a human trafficker who, who wants to snatch her child as, as soon as she turns her back. And so she writes this Facebook post so people will be uh, aware of the problem and, and be vigilant. And then the local news station will pick it up and do a story. Um, and often without, you know, bothering to get like a critical, I, I mean, sometimes they'll call the cops and, and the police will say, you know, there's never been any case like that at the Walmart. Um, you know, be sure, be vigilant, but that's not going to happen. Um, you know, and, and, and spread these things. And then after years of this happening, what do you know? There's a version of it where they rope in Hillary Clinton. Um, you know, <laughs> it's, uh, and I mean, and there's a long history of sort of like fringy, like conspiracy theories where there's secret cabals of pedophiles running the United States government. Fine. But yeah. like, part of like the backdrop of this is, you know, what do you know? Somebody, you, it's not just a matter of, hey, suddenly, you know, uh, politics is being impacted by the stuff from the fringe. It's more like this very mainstream conspiracy theory and, and, and moral panic is um, mm -hmm. suddenly taking on a, a, a political coloring. It was already there in the mainstream. Um, now we've just managed to find somebody to do it in a partisan way. Well, there you have it. Uh, we're out of time, so we're going to end there. But thank you very much, Jesse Walker. The book is The United States of Paranoia, available on Amazon right now. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me on. Good to talk to you again. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.